From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, labor economist William Spriggs joins me to discuss the challenges facing the Democratic Party if they wish to regain a majority in Congress. Is it a matter of attracting white voters who abandon the party for Donald Trump? Or is it expanding their base to include more people of color? That's coming up on The Public Morale. Welcome to The Public Morality. When you lose a presidential election, as did the Democrats in 2016, it is expected that those within the party will develop reasons for their defeat along with steps to garner victory in the next election. Oftentimes, however, that analysis is reactionary based on a stagnant reality that may no longer exist by the time the next presidential election rolls around. Currently, there seems to be warring factions within the Democratic Party. One group offers appealing to white voters, the forgotten person in middle America, is the party's path to victory. Another group suggests expanding the party to attract the growing population of people of color. Both sides have data to support their claims, but is either side correct? My guest, Professor William Spriggs, offers that what is currently presented is essentially a false choice. Professor Spriggs is a professor of economics at Howard University. He served as Assistant Secretary of Policy in President Obama's Labor Department and Chief Economist for the AFL-CIO. Professor William Spriggs, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Now, I, w- I would like to begin this conversation by asking simply whether the current economic data, as you understand it, sir, is telling the complete story about the American economy. Well, the, the story is complex because the economy continues to grow, but it has some troubling signs to it. The real economy, that is, you know, where we buy and sell things and have employment, has a danger because the uh, sales of automobiles has been declining. But that's a bad sign. It's one of the industries that still hires a lot of Americans and is a driver of employment in other areas of the economy. That's slowing. Uh, We also have our trade deficit expanding greatly, and, and that's an ongoing problem that needs to be corrected. That's on the downside. On the upside, uh, we continue to have employment growth that is not as rapid as it was three years ago. Um, in fact, last year, employment growth was the slowest since 2010. And we have finally seen some almost decent, not really decent, but almost decent wage growth. Wages were up 3% over the year last month, but a lot of people made a big deal of that. You can't read into just one month of data. They fluctuate. So I think some people are over-reading what the data indicated. Uh, on the horizon, you have 
what the stock market has been reacting to, which is a stronger belief that the Fed is going to go ahead and stick to its announcement that it will raise short-term interest rates three times this year. And the markets, they take that as a signal they can get out of equities, that is trading stocks, and start a position of taking up bonds. And then you have that the federal government has an impossible budget now that they passed this tax cut. The tax cut is going to require massive borrowing by the federal government. And I think a lot of people are interpreting the borrowing that the federal government is going to have to do with what the Fed wants to do as continued pressure to raise interest rates. And so some people are thinking about getting out of stocks and moving into bonds. And then you have the new tax law, which itself gives people an incentive to sell their equities because we've been going through this tremendous bear market. The tax bill cut the capital gains that they'll have to pay on selling those stocks. And there are undoubtedly many people who have tremendous gains who are holding on in anticipation that they were going to get this tax cut who decided they want to get the money while the tax rate was lower. So that's why it's complex. I mean, you know, there are things that are going on that are good. There's the potential for the Fed to mess things up by continuing to raise interest rates that could threaten the auto market. And by threatening the auto market, threaten jobs. Uh, we know that in the black and Latino community, a lot of cars were bought at subprime interest rates. Um, some of the banks have pulled back on that. That's part of why auto sales have slowed. But the fear on my part is if we don't continue to have very robust job growth, then the normal churn in the market where people lose their jobs, when blacks and Latinos lose their jobs, if the market isn't creating enough new jobs, then you can end up with a net loss of jobs. And that means the black unemployment rate goes up, which it did last week, last month when we reported it. So uh, that bump up in the black unemployment rate, that could just be a one-time thing. It does, the black unemployment rate in the official reports does go up and down. But if it starts to go up, then we have a big problem because people are going to get foreclosed on their cars very rapidly. Uh, cars are not houses. And... Um, and if you dump a lot of cars on the current auto market because you repossess them and then try and resell them, uh, you're going to crash the auto market. And then we're in a big problem. So that's my concern, uh, that the Fed may do something that it shouldn't do, which is to continue to raise interest rates despite slowing auto sales and slowing uh, job growth. Uh, and you've already seen the markets build that sort of thing in. They believe that's going to happen. So with that said, sir, that, that, that gives me a perfect segue. Thank you for, for that analysis. Um, the piece you wrote back in uh, June 2017 entitled Why the White Worker Theme is Harmful, um, could you provide us with a Reader's Digest distillation of that piece, please? 
Well, a lot of people want to portray the vote for Trump as people being angry at the economy. And undoubtedly some people were. But the problem with that is that you're ignoring the greater suffering that's going on in the black and Latino labor market. And programs that are designed only to address white workers or that ignore the pains of black and Latino workers are programs that, in the end, hurt all workers and, in the end, uh, miss uh, a deeper problem that the country has with racism. So, just as an example, a lot of people who are progressive love to point out the 1930s. In their minds, it's an imaginary period when the myth goes, when uh, uh, white workers and black workers stood together and formed this wonderful coalition. We got these wonderful programs. It's not true. Um, white workers only ended up accepting uh, programs that left black workers out. So in the process, hurt more white workers than black workers, but disproportionately hurt black workers worse. So Social Security uh, initially excluded agricultural workers and domestic workers. More white workers were agricultural workers than was true for black workers in the absolute numbers. But in relative terms, a much higher share of black workers were agricultural workers. So this kind of mentality that we'll do a program and as long as white workers, the majority of white workers are helped, even if we hurt a lot of white people, that's okay because we don't want to have uh, a program that actually pushes equality. So the initial social security program uh, did not benefit blacks uh, in the way that it benefited whites. And that meant when you got to the 1950s, white workers didn't have to worry about their parents because their parents' retirement was all taken care of. That was a massive infusion of wealth into the white community that suddenly this intergenerational um, support wasn't necessary. You didn't have to support your parents. Uh, similarly, when we knew during the Depression there was a problem, the housing market collapsed, banks went under, and we introduced programs to help shore up the housing market and give normal people access to housing credit in a more stable way than when the banks went in. So we set up uh, several institutions, government institutions, to mediate home mortgages. But as we all know, those programs reinforced already existing segregation in housing and favored whites over blacks. And so again in the 1950s, um, whites were given a huge advantage in home ownership. So the combination of the advantage given to whites in terms of home ownership and the advantage given to whites that they didn't have to worry about their parents meant that a huge wealth gap could develop and did develop 
between blacks and whites. But this got a notion that I can do something for white workers and ignore the plight of black workers. And uh, that as long as I'm helping workers, then that's okay. Well, um, and now we're, we're seeing that it doesn't work because for white workers, many of the things that are the safety nets that are necessary have huge holes in them. And during the downturn in 2008, white workers began to understand and experience all those gaps and holes that have been created in the safety net. All initially with the idea that, well, okay, but it leaves out, disproportionately leaves out black workers, but we don't have to worry about that. No, now you have to worry about that. So so the, the problem is that, that if you look at problems only through the eyes of white workers, you, you miss uh, key elements of why markets aren't working for workers, broadly speaking. You speak as if blacks weren't steel workers. You speak as if blacks weren't textile workers. You speak as if blacks weren't auto workers. Because so often you will hear people say that these are angry voters because you know, textile jobs were sent overseas. It's like, okay, but you've been to Greensboro. Black people used to work in mills, too. We lost those jobs, too. Um, and so ignoring that means that you look at a set of workers who are suffering, and you blame those workers. And you don't think of programs and solutions that address all workers' needs, and that's the problem. That's that's why that fallacy creates this this huge problem. And and we saw in 2008 through 2010 how many people suffered because we we have treated the deeper suffering of blacks and Latino workers as uh, something different. They they aren't the problems of bad trade deals. They aren't the problems of greedy corporations. They aren't the problems of letting Wall Street run rampant over Main Street. We treated the problems of black workers as the problems of black people. And we've treated them without finding solutions for them. And any solution that helps a black worker is going to help a white worker. If you do it in the reverse, it's not necessarily true. Not necessarily true that a solution that helps white workers automatically helps black workers because white workers have had a more privileged position. They have never had the unemployment rates of blacks. They not had the lower rates of home ownership. They have higher rates of, of wealth. And so you can you can construct a program which would help those workers but leave out large numbers of of workers. And so that's why there's a problem. There's a problem with having the discussion as if whites are workers and blacks aren't. Well, to that, to that, to that end, what we hear right now in the public discourse, um, what I, what my definition is that there's, there's a warring faction within the democratic party. I've, I've seen articles that look at the last election and say, well, we've got a, the party um, has to reach out more to white workers. Um, then I've seen on the other end, 
some uh, people writing articles that say, no, we have to expand the base of uh, people of color. Um, that's the key. Uh, but I hear you offering a more nuanced um, sort of nuanced economic vision, more so than the actual identity of who you're reaching out to. And I wonder how you exactly saw that. Yes, it is. Uh, I, I think it's a little more nuanced. And I think those who say they only want to reach out to white workers just have it wrong. You, you, the reach out to white workers is to get them to understand that there is a war being waged on all workers, and they have to choose sides. And if you offer to them that there's a solution that is meant for white people, then you are playing to a side that is the racist motivation and what Trump does. And you reinforce a notion that there's a way to save white workers, and that's a false offer of help. You can only save workers. And so the message has to be a way for white workers to understand that blacks are workers too, and therefore you have to see the problems that blacks are going through as the problem of workers, and we have to solve those problems. So let's take North Carolina, which has gone whole hog on attacking workers. So first off, you know, an ancient fight that the state fought was over right to work. Blacks are disproportionately more likely to be in unions than whites. Unions are necessary for blacks to get wage increases that they couldn't get otherwise. Uh, and so the attack on unions is a racialized attack. The original purpose of right-to-work laws was explicitly to prevent the organizing of textile workers where blacks and whites would be forced to be in the same union and therefore equal. And in a segregated society, the idea that workers would be equal, even if they were textile workers, was abhorrent. And the whole point of the right to work was to prevent that from happening. And so in North Carolina, which has had its union movement under that boot for so long, uh, you have among the lowest union densities in the nation. And where we see low union density, we see a broad range of attacks on workers, and this runs from limiting voting rights, which is an old, old, old tool of the elite to repress the real democracy. Uh, it goes to mass incarceration. This has always been a way to control workers, is to remind them that I will starve you to death, and if you don't like being starved to death, I will put you in prison. It's to make being poor a crime. So you look at rules on bail, when you look at rules on um, when what gets criminalized, uh, you know, people being picked up on bench warrants because of uh, massive parking violations. 
that's war. That's part of the war on workers. And when you get white workers to think, oh, that's not me. I don't have to worry about mass incarceration. Uh, that's not me. They're not repressing my right to vote. No, they are. Yes, they are repressing your right to, to vote because they're taking away the vote of another worker. They're taking away workers' voice in democracy. When you look at investment in K-12 through education, states with low union density are the states that are least likely to spend money on basic education. Why? Because it's another war on workers. It's not making the investment to give them the skills to be competitive, um, to, to be able to be in a better position to bargain against their boss. Uh, all of these things are attacks on workers, and they're only possible in this broader array. And the tendency, when people say, well, I want to speak for you know white workers, they, they tend to mean uh, higher income tax paying workers who own a home. An increasing share of whites aren't in that group, particularly young whites. And what has become very important in the last couple of years, particularly among young workers, is they are now organizing at a very fast rate they are joining unions. They are looking to unions as a solution to how do we get our wages up because the deal has been broken between the American worker and our economic system. American workers aren't benefiting from our economic system as they had in the past. If you're just part of that breaking of the deal was by breaking unions, which, again, is a racialized fight. If you're just joining us, I'm... Joined by uh, Professor William Spriggs of Howard University and Chief Economist for the AFL-CIO. He also served as Assistant Secretary for Policy in President Obama's Labor Department. Um, Professor Spriggs, one of the things that that struck me about the piece, um, so much of what you wrote uh, back in that June 2017 piece, along with the conversation we're having right now, illustrates that the issues are decades in the making. And doesn't that make it even more difficult to have a judicious analysis based simply on the last election? Yes. The the reason why workers are where they are is a break in U.S. economic history that occurred uh, around 1980 at the time of Ronald Reagan's election. So that process uh, started then, and it's we're seeing all of the bad things about that process become so evident today. So, yeah, it's a long process, and because it happened over time, a lot of people don't realize what happened to them. So it's like... You know, the old story of the frog, you put it in the hot water, you put it in the water and then you turn up the heat. And because they're cold-blooded creatures, they never realize that they're being boiled. It's too late when they finally understand that's what happened. And you see this angst among young workers because they're being thrown into the water and it's boiling. It's bubbling over. 
And you see the anger and frustration in the younger generation that just don't understand how this could have happened. But it's the slow process of attacking the right of workers to organize, undermining the minimum wage, taking away the safety net from workers, and depicting people who can't find a job as um, unworthy. Um, and instead of blaming a system which is failing to create enough jobs to sustain a middle class, and by changing the politics away from the middle to the top, and even the way we think about how politics should work, before politicians were so worried about what is this going to do for the middle, and now you see politicians in this current tax bill that got passed only touting, oh, look at what we did for the rich. And, you know, they tried to make up like, oh, we did something for the middle class. But, but they were really touting, look what we did for the rich. And things have become that perverse. And that's a process over time. And this last election is the process over time of racializing the way we look at the economy so that white workers don't see an unemployed black worker as an unemployed worker. They see them as an unemployed black worker. They don't see them as an unemployed worker. They don't see the failure of our economy to generate enough jobs as the failure of our economy. And that's the message that has to go forth. People have to have that empathy. Workers have to empathize with other workers. If they want to know why you get a bad trade deal, it's because nobody empathizes with the workers. Nobody says, I care about textile jobs having been gone because I get cheaper shirts from China or Taiwan or Vietnam or whatever. That, that lack of empathy is rampant, and it has to stop. One of the things, sir, that I, um, when I read your piece that, that jumped out at me, um, and I'm not trying to pick you against the, the uh, authors who take a different position, but if you're saying um, reach out to white voters, if you're saying expand the pool of people of color, that is about, in my view, the next election. But what I hear you saying and, and what you wrote in your piece is that you're offering a to, to, to revamp a coalition for a long-term change in the economic trajectory. Would that would that be fair, sir? That would be fair. Uh, that would be fair. It's re-educating the it's re-educating voters so that they really understand that the top one percent have picked on the bottom ninety-nine percent, and you have to revamp your thinking so that you understand it's the 99% of us against the 1%. And that means that when, when you see a state say, well, we don't want to give Medicaid unless you show that you have a job. We don't want to give food assistance unless you show me you have a job. You're morally bankrupt. The moral equation in a society that says, we messed up the economy so there aren't enough jobs, but we don't, we don't take responsibility for that. The moral equation when I say you must have a job or else I won't do X, Y, or Z means that society must therefore have a job. 
That's an equation. When I say you must work, the moral equation says that I must provide you with a job. So anybody that says I'm going to require work, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to produce jobs, that's immoral. There's no, the equation is broken. When you say I must take a job, but you don't think I have to have a wage that can feed my family, then you're saying that I must be poor. That is immoral. You, you have to have a minimum wage so that when I take a job, I will not be poor. So you cannot have a wage that makes me poor. That's immoral. So part of this is to revamp the way we look at things, but part of it is to inject a new morality, a full morality, and to call out people who are being sham artists on this because they are being immoral. Besides which, the economics doesn't work. The economics really doesn't work. And that's the other part of the problem here. And an economy that is unequal cannot sustain itself as a market economy because people, too many people are priced out of the market. So the market collapses, which is what we saw with housing in 2008. Well, on that note of housing, um, in however you define uh, revised, but where is uh, the housing market now after the uh, post-collapse? Well, for the people who are able to hold on to their homes, um, we, we vastly improved the market, and the Federal Reserve took massive steps to protect the value of homes so that they wouldn't continue to collapse and let the market heal uh, through the process. And so people who were able to hold on, hold on to their homes, only a small share of, of, of homeowners now are underwater. That is, only a small share of homeowners owe more than what the house is worth. So in that sense, the people who got to hold on to their homes through all of this, um, they were well served. The problem is that disproportionately blacks lost a lot of home ownership. So people who lost homes are now... Uh, far worse off than they were because we kept the price and value of homes up, but that meant that if, if you lost your home, you, you were deeper in, 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 in a hole in terms of trying to get the one asset which most sort of middle-income Americans can attain, which is home ownership. And then you have this problem. When you have massive inequality that we have, <clears throat> the market follows one dollar, one vote. It does not follow one person, one vote. Very shortly, half the income in the United States, half the income, will be in the top 10%. That means the 10% get more economic votes than the bottom 90%. And what do economic votes mean? It means that the market will produce what you want because you have the dollars. What do you want? Well, I want a house. Well, I'm going to build a house that pleases the 10% because they have the money. If I'm going to build a house, it's because I want money for building the house. So the 10% dictate the price of housing. And the price of housing has been going up with people at the top of the income range, not people at the middle. That's why housing prices are going up faster than incomes. It's why 
young people, instead of having 25% of their income spent on rent, are spending 50, 55% of their income on rent because the market is tilted towards the high-income households. When you de-invest in higher education because you're, you're spending all your money building prisons and incarcerating workers, so you don't have any money to invest in your higher education, and you force colleges to chase tuition dollars, the tuition dollars come from people at the top. So tuition goes up with incomes at the top. That's why people in the middle are finding college increasingly un unaffordable. So, so not only the housing market, but college, daycare, health, all of those things are going to continue to be highly imbalanced because of our high level of inequality, and people will not be able to be healthy enough, they won't be able to own homes, and they won't be able to educate their children because of this high level of inequality. That's why inequality doesn't work as an economic principle. Finally, sir, um, why has the word um, uh, entitlement become uh, such a pejorative in, in, in so, so many circles of our political discourse? I'm specifically Social Security and other things, but, but why is that such a, a bad word now? Well, it's a bad word because it speaks to democracy, and entitlement is a right through a democratic process. When the top 10% own over 50% of the income, when the top 1% own almost all the wealth in the whole nation, they control the economy. They don't control the democracy. And what they fear is that anything democratically decided threatens them because it's a form of redistribution from their perspective because it means they have to pay taxes. I mean, you know, if you're the top 1%, what do you care? you got your own jet. You don't need airports. You don't need roads. Uh, <laughs> you barely need police. You have your own little guards and everything. So they can live as an island, they believe, and they hate and fear the influence of democratic processes. And entitlement means that as a democracy, we have decided that we want an economy that protects workers in case they become too old and can't work, or they become disabled and can't work, or protects their families because they've lost income because the worker has died, or protects a worker in the case of unemployment insurance because we run the economy into the ground, and that wasn't done by workers that 2008 collapse was not workers' fault, that we lost all those jobs. So, so the word entitlement is evil because for those at the top, those who control the economy, anything that lets the 99% exercise their democratic right and say that the economy must function with certain basic levels, that to them cannot happen. In their religion, and it is a religion, it is a religion because any day people willingly accept a tax bill that would cut people off from health care, and they silently do that, and they think that this is for some good, that's a religion because it's not, for, it's not in reality for some good. This is only in, 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 in their theology that it's for some good. 
And so, and so this is antithetical to their religion. Antithetical in the true sense of antithetical because it's against a religion, it's against a, a theology. And, and that word entitlement cannot be part of the lexicon. We cannot accept it because it fights against the great God that they have. Their great God is the job creator, the invisible hand of the market. That's a religion. That is a religion. Dr. William Spriggs, uh, Howard University, AFL-CIO, uh, former Assistant Secretary of the Labor Department, thank you, sir, for joining us today on The Public Morality. Much appreciated having your voice, sir. That was William Spriggs. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. closing remarks. William Tecumseh Sherman is correct. War is indeed hell. And no amount of yellow ribbons, bumper stickers, claiming unwavering support for our soldiers or parade can mitigate that fact. But according to the Washington Post recently, President Donald Trump wants a parade like the one he saw in Paris while attending the Bastille Day procession. In the post-Vietnam era, War policy has become a linear sophomore proposition whereby any criticism of the policy consumes every aspect of the enterprise, including a critique on the American soldier. There are roughly 16 million books in the Library of Congress, yet one would be hard-pressed to locate the volume authored by Congress in the aftermath of Vietnam entitled Lessons Learned, based on America's post-Vietnam behavior. The only takeaways have been to prohibit the press from taking photos of the, or filming the fallen soldiers who returned by way of Dover Air Force Base and to conflate the mission with supporting the troops. It's one thing for the country to show its appreciation for our armed forces, which I believe the nation makes a laudable effort, but it's another to demonstrate support. Here, America could use some tweaking. America loses on average 20 veterans daily the suicide. According to the Military Suicide Research Consortium, mental health rates have risen 65% in the military since 2000 because of issues ranging from PTSD and depression to readjustment challenges and sleeping problems. Veterans are twice as likely as the civilian population of committing suicide, according to a 2013 Los Angeles Times report. Over 57,000 veterans are homeless on any given night, according to the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Unemployment is much higher among post-9-11 veterans than the general population, according to the Department of Labor. More than 1.4 million veterans are living below the poverty line, according to the U.S. Senate report, and another 1.4 million are just above the line. These tragic statistics are not the president's fault. But it ought to be his concern. War may be hell. Too many veterans continue to realize it after their service is complete. So in the midst of our cheers and steadfast support, veterans continue to fall through the cracks. 
that the president could focus the nation's attention on reducing the number of veterans that commit suicide, are homeless, or have simply given up. Not only would it expand our definition of supporting America's troops, it would also be something worthy of a celebration. That's how one moves toward that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. My weekly column appears in the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. You can also follow me on Twitter, as well as Facebook. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.